Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted July 14, 2017, we talk with University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck about his article in the new WPJ summer issue, Dignity, Not Deadly Force, Why Procedural Justice Matters for Modern Policing and Democracy. We'll also spotlight other top features in that new summer issue, cover line, Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants. He's also a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. With Washington consumed by the latest evidence of collusion between Trump confidants and the Russian government, the fall of Mosul a milestone in both the battle against Islamic State and Iraq's struggle to survive, got short shrift this week. Mosul, once Iraq's second city, might be more appropriately called a ruin today, after repeatedly changing hands in the past decade and a half. I was there in 1997 when Saddam Hussein's regime held it firmly in its grip. The city fell quickly in April 2003 to Kurdish Peshmerga, but U.S. troops lingered outside, touching off the looting of museums and shops and general anarchy that would become all too familiar in liberated Iraqi cities. My friend and former BBC colleague Michael Goldfarb was there at the time too. With him, an Iraqi fixer, a Mosul-born Kurd named Ahmed Shawkat. Inspired by the era of peace and freedom the U.S. promised after the invasion, Ahmed launched a newspaper that pressed for democracy and ethnic tolerance. As Goldfarb recounted later in a subsequent book, Ahmed's War, Ahmed's Peace, Ahmed himself became a martyr to this cause, murdered by unknown assailants, an early victim of the river of blood that would soon overwhelm the U.S. occupation. Throughout the occupation, violence plagued Mosul. Many of the minority groups among its 1.8 million inhabitants fled, including Assyrian Christians, Chaldeans, Turkmen, Armenians, and many Kurds. A relative calm had descended by the time coalition forces withdrew in 2012, but calamity beckoned. The rise of ISIS in the empty wake of the U.S. pullout led to a rout in June 2014 of Mosul's Iraqi defenders, whose commanders foolishly refused Kurdish offers of help. Hundreds of thousands again fled the city, and those who remained chafed under the religious tyranny of the Islamic State. Ethnic Yazidis from nearby villages, in particular, were murdered in droves, and their women were deemed heretics and made to be sex slaves by the pious terrorists. Now Mosul has fallen yet again. As Goldfarb and other veteran observers of Iraq point out, the loss of Mosul is hardly a victory for the West, though it is a blow for ISIS. America's misadventure in Iraq shows that defeating your enemy on the battlefield is not the same as victory, Goldfarb says. But we can all hope that this most recent insult to a once beautiful city and its hard-pressed people will be the last. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. Listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Ah! Told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um pocket, and he let the officer know that he was re- he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet, and the officer just shot him. The system continues to fail black people. 
It was really only the live-time Facebook video posted by his girlfriend that has made the fatal shooting of a black motorist by a non-black cop in Minnesota unique in American law enforcement these days. Certainly it wasn't the officer's recent acquittal on all charges based on a claim that he incorrectly feared for his life. That's a frequently successful defense for policemen in such cases, whatever the actual circumstances, as Philando Castile's grieving mother angrily implied. But is excessive force in law enforcement, from traffic stops to crowd control to anti-terror tactics, also failing the system about which Castile's mother complained, as well as society at large and democracy itself? Just so, argues University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck in the new summer issue of World Policy Journal, Coverline Justice Denied. His article is headlined, Dignity, Not Deadly Force, Why Procedural Justice Matters for Modern Policing and Democracy. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Professor Huck, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me, David. Talk about the increasing divergence between law enforcement in practice today and new theories on it, starting with current practices, driven in large part by military technology straight from Uncle Sam. That, that's right. Over the last two decades, uh, the federal government has given some uh, $4.3 billion in uh, uh, surplus military resources to state and local police departments. This has driven a militarization of uh, policing at the local level of a kind that uh, at least in the United States, we, we, we simply haven't seen before. Electronics, particularly for surveillance as well as data collection and analysis, also play an increasing role. That's right. There, there's a suite of companies like Palantir that cut their teeth providing surveillance and electronic intelligence systems for the military, but that are increasingly supplying the same kind of systems to civilian law enforcement. So, for example, in the city of New York, the NYPD has a, a contract with Palantir to supply uh, what in effect is big data analysis of all of the uh, audiovisual and electronic information they obtain uh, that runs them about $3 million a year. And what does this help them do? We see different things uh, coming out of, of military uh, surplus equipment and uh, the aggressive use of big data technologies. Uh, uh, both uh, allow for much more aggressive street policing. Uh, you see this in the uptick in tactics such as stop and frisk. Uh, you see it in the, in the very aggressive use of home searches and uh, stash house raids uh, in uh, particularly minority African-American and Latino communities. The effects of electronic surveillance are, are, are really interesting and, and, and very complicated. Um, on the one hand, uh, very good big data analytics ought to allow police departments to precisely target the use of their resources in ways that mitigate the costs of public security for people who have no connection to crime. And, and there's some uh, examples of that being done successfully. Uh, on the other hand, there are many other examples, including from Chicago, where I live, where uh, the police claims to rely upon big data but where when one looks at uh, things like the Chicago Police Department's so-called 
uh, hot list of, of suspects. One sees something that, that's really quite indiscriminate and uh, doesn't reflect a, a wise deployment of resources. And driving up demand for use of these technologies and tactics, you say, is a politics of fear in an age of undeniable foreign and, to a lesser extent, domestic terrorism. Talk more about that. Yeah, this is something that we've seen both in the United States and in Europe, where politicians on both the right and the left have capitalized uh, and, and, more importantly, stoked public fears about crime. So in the United States, this, I think people associate this with President Nixon, with uh, his campaign manager, Lee Atwater, who very much understood that it had become in the 1970s publicly unacceptable to campaign as an openly anti-black candidate, uh, at least at the national level, and, and therefore turned to coded dog whistle messages about uh, uh, crime where it was, it was clear for all to see that, that, that claims about rising crime were really claims about black crime. Um, uh, whereas people associate the, the politicization of crime with, with Nixon and Atwater, I think it goes back much further. I think if you look back, even as far as the 1890s, you have a rhetoric that the effort to reconstruct the South had failed because African-Americans were inherently criminal. As you start to see African-Americans arriving in large numbers in uh, northern cities like Chicago, Detroit, New York, uh, there is a, a growing racialization of crime in the minds of uh, political elites at the city and at the, and at the national level. Uh, and this, this continues uh, up through the, 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 the 40s and the 50s. Um, it gathers new steam with the civil rights movement in the United States, uh, where there's very much a conscious effort on the part of Southern politicians to stigmatize uh, the, the, uh, the civil rights movement, the NAACP, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, as the same kind of person as the, 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 the mugger or the, the rapist on the street corner. Uh, and so we have a very long tradition in the United States of crime being deployed by politicians as a way of uh, stoking their own popularity, uh, but also as a way of, of targeting and stigmatizing uh, often racial others. So how well have battlefield tactics and high-tech handled the spectrum of police concerns, from petty crime to civil protest and unrest to ideologically motivated mayhem? Well, we just don't know. And it's fascinating that um, in almost every other sphere of uh, government activity, whenever the government uh, spends a lot of money or imposes new costs by way of regulation, say for, for the sake of the environment or for the sake of workplace safety or, or in healthcare, there's a great deal of attention given to the costs and benefits of that action. Right? So you see this, for example, in the debates around the Republican proposal to uh, uh, supersede uh, the Affordable Care Act right now and the attention that's being given to the Congressional Budget Office's estimates. We just don't have anything like that for the use of uh, increasingly coercive uh, physical forms of technology, tanks, uh, uh, APVs, uh, assault rifles, or 
the aggressively intrusive forms of electronic surveillance and big data analysis that police are increasingly rely, relying upon. So we are, we are spending at the municipal level millions, at the national level billions on a public policy issue that uh, many people, I, I think, rightly see as being uh, central to the, uh, to the functions of government, preserving public safety, without really any solid evidentiary basis that these interventions work. It's very hard to see how, it's, what do you think about it in comparison to you know, the debates in healthcare, the debates in environment? Policing and public safety starts to look utterly irresponsible because of how little we know. But haven't we heard, especially during the campaign, that in fact, uh, despite arguments that uh, there was this great crime problem, that uh, crime in, in big cities has actually gone down? That's absolutely right, although nobody quite knows why. Uh, the ah. story in the United States is that starting in the 1970s, there was a, a rise in crime, and, and, and it was a, a, a dramatic rise in crime. It was both nonviolent crimes like uh, uh, property crimes, uh, but also violent crimes. Some of that rise in crime is associated with the crack epidemic that hit the United States in the early 1980s and uh, catalyzed a set of changes to organized crime and gang activity. Uh, part of it is thought to be a result of changing demographics. So, for example, Stephen Levitt, uh, my University of Chicago colleague, who many of your listeners will know uh, due to Freakonomics, has a, an influential paper where he argues that the, that the rise in crime in the 90s is a result of uh, changing numbers, volumes of uh, children of unwed mothers. He also argues that the drop in crime that, that starts in the 1990s and that continues precipitously through to the beginning of the, 20th, through the, beginning of the 21st century uh, is a consequence of Roe v. Wade. Right? And this is a very controversial position for obvious reasons, but there's nothing intuitively um, problematic about it or, or, or false about it in the sense that if you think that crime is committed primarily by young men and young men who are... Uh, standing outside the usual networks of socialization and moral restraint that hold most of us back, then the fewer such young men there are, well, the fewer or the less crime you would expect to see. Um, the contribution of policing to the drop in crime since the 1990s is a hotly contested uh, issue in political science and in criminology. And I think that the, the best summary is to say that there is weak evidence that some policing tactics have some small impact upon that um, uh, 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 fall in crime. Probably the best evidence is for the sheer presence of police officers, right? So when cities hired more police officers and then put them on street corners, that seemed to have an effect on crime. Interestingly, without much regard to what they were doing, Right? So it was the fact that you had a lot, lots more cops on the streets that seemed to deter crime. It wasn't the fact that they were engaging in stops and frisks. It wasn't the fact that they were using APVs or, 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 or making a show of quasi-military force. It certainly wasn't the, uh, the use of, um, uh, of big data technologies. Um, on all of those things, we, we, we have very little evidence that there was an effect on, uh, on crime or, or that, there, that these contributed to the crime drop over the last 20 years.
Now let's talk about the developing divergent view of many criminologists, psychologists, sociologists, and legal scholars like yourself, what you call procedural justice. Explain it and the studies in various countries on which it's based. So procedural justice is, is, is essentially the idea that individuals respond to authority not only because they worry about the uh, penalties that the authority could impose or the benefits that they could get from the authority, because they have a, but because they also have a judgment that this authority, this police officer, this court, this state, has moral authority. It, it's, it's a legitimate authority. It's some uh, authority that has the right in a moral but not a practical sense uh, to give instructions to you or I. And, and this idea that there is uh, something other uh, to human behavior than uh, uh, the kind of the abacus rattling uh, 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 welfare maximizing homo economicus that is the stock and trade of uh, economists certainly, but some social scientists too, um, start this idea that there's an alternative model of human behavior, that, that humans care more about uh, kind of bare costs and benefits in the policing context, really starts to emerge in the 1980s and 90s with a scholar called Tom Tyler. And, and uh, Tyler, who's now at Yale, is responsible for literally um, hundreds, and, and I think that's him personally has been involved in hundreds, but, but he certainly has catalyzed a, a whole field of research involving uh, uh, tens or hundreds of, of other scholars in countries around the world, ranging from the United Kingdom to France and Germany to Pakistan to Hong Kong to uh, South, America, South Africa to, uh, I, think, I believe it was Ghana. Uh, so those are just some of the countries that I know of studies having been done in. Or what Tyler, Tyler's research uh, agenda was, and, and what, what the research agenda that's pursued in all these studies has focused on, is the question whether people respond to the state, and in particular the police, who are the most immediate representatives of the state, based upon perceptions of costs and benefits, or based upon perceptions of whether the state and the police in particular are morally legitimate authorities. And the, the finding from literally hundreds of studies that have been done uh, around the world is consistently that um, judgments of moral legitimacy have powerful effects upon people's uh, uh, willingness both to comply and cooperate with the immediate instructions of law enforcement, but also uh, have long-term effects on their proclivity to uh, obey or not obey the law, right? Uh, and so the, the claim in the procedural justice literature is not that the legitimacy of the state is the only thing that determines people's compliance with uh, legal rules. It is rather that if you want to bend the curve of illegality, it turns out that you are much better off investing in the moral legitimacy of the state than you are investing in uh, the, the sticks but not carrots that the criminal justice system 
ordinarily relies on. You mentioned a 2007 study of drunk driving in Australia. Say more about the procedures tested and their different outcomes. So if you talk to an, an empirical uh, scholar, if you talk to somebody who, who is interested in, in uh, uh, using data about the world uh, today, they will tell you that the gold standard for figuring out causation is a randomized experiment, an experiment where you have two groups, one of whom you give a treatment to, the other one you don't, and who, but who otherwise don't differ, and then you look to see whether the treated group uh, behaves differently from the untreated group, the control group. This is standardly done in the medical field. This is, I'm just describing the kind of the basic uh, model of, of most drug testing. Uh, the Australia uh, uh, study that, that you mentioned is, a, is one of these randomized experiments. And the idea was that you take a, a large group of people who've all been stopped for drunk driving, and then you randomly allocate this group to one of two different treatments. In one treatment, they're processed through the normal criminal justice system. In the other, they are given a form of processing that is characterized by procedural justice. Um, and, and that's an important idea that I haven't introduced yet, and, and I should say a word about it. Um, the finding of the, of, this, of the literature associated with Tom Tyler is that people's belief about the moral legitimacy of the state flows from their experience of uh, individual police officers as being, or individual agents of the state, as being um, fair-minded, even-handed, and respectful. And those relatively straightforward concepts of fair-mindedness, even-handedness, and respect are usually described as procedural justice. So in the Australia experiment, there was a control group that wasn't given any particular special treatment. And there was a treatment group where the, the individuals and the procedures that we, that we used to process the person's case and to handle their both criminal and civil penalties were characterized by procedural justice, that, that, that the officers concerned were taught to be especially respectful, especially uh, cognizant of being even-handed, uh, listening to people's reasons, and, and, and the like. What the researchers did was to look at the, uh, was to wait two years and to look at the rates of uh, recidivism, the rates of repeat offense with respect to drunk driving. And what they found is that the rate of, of reoffending over drunk driving, which is the arrest, which was the offense that these people initially had been uh, arrested on, the, the recidivism rate was, was statistically significantly and meaningfully lower for the groups that have been subject to uh, the procedural justice treatment. That is, two groups of people exactly the same, one group of people processed with procedural justice, the other one not. The procedural justice group down the road tends to reoffend less with respect to a crime, drunk driving, that has really quite serious social consequences. Another study in which uh, you personally participated focused on different approaches to counter-terrorism policing and their impact on Muslim communities. Say more about that one. That's right. That's a different kind of study uh, that um, involved doing large surveys of both Muslim and non-Muslim uh, communities in New York and in London and then looking at what they... Uh, said about the police, 
their own experiences of the police, their own moral judgments about the police, and asking them about what they would do if they were to come into contact with something that might be um, evidence of a uh, terrorism incident. So if they, if they thought that one of their uh, friends, for example, was visiting uh, terrorist websites or reading terrorist propaganda or something of that kind. And, and our, our aim was to understand whether different experiences of the police affected individuals' willingness to engage in that kind of reporting behavior or, or other kinds of important cooperation. And, and it would be great to be able to do that kind of uh, a test in the, in the same randomized control way that the Australia drunk driving test was done. But we, we don't have enough instances, thankfully, of terrorism that it's actually possible to do a randomized control test. And we're not about to, to uh, create a randomized control test where we're, where we're somehow misleadingly exposing individuals to what they might perceive as a risk of terrorism as a way of figuring out what they will do. Right? So it's, it's harder, to, it's, it's it's not harder, it's impossible to do the, uh, it's impossible to do the, the experiments, and so you have to do um, uh, something like a, a survey, uh, you have to use a survey method instead. What we found is that consistent with the body of procedural justice uh, scholarship, for both uh, Muslim and non-Muslim communities, the fact that the Muslim community was treated or was perceived to be treated with less than respectful, even-handedness and fair-minded uh, 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 ways, uh, depressed the willingness to cooperate across a variety of different uh, measures uh, in respect to counterterrorism. That didn't surprise us with respect to the Muslim communities. What did surprise us um, is that you saw the same diminishment in expected cooperation, the, the willingness to, to come forward and help the police among non-Muslim populations when they were told or when they perceived that Muslims were subject to uh, unfair, procedurally unjust treatment. Right? So what, what, we, what we found, and, and this is actually consistent with some studies of blacks and whites in the United States that were done in California, what we found is that, the, is that the poor treatment of a minority group can spill over into the uh, behavior of a, uh, a racial or a religious majority group. Your article notes that U.S. police officials and policymakers seem only intermittently aware of the backlash that harsh anti-terror tactics can have in Muslim communities. But the issue was certainly spotlighted by Democrats critical of Donald Trump's anti-Muslim campaign rhetoric. So is it real cluelessness at the grassroots, uh, willful ignorance, or ideological blinders? I think, unfortunately, national security is something that is um, uh, debated in the democratic sphere in a way that is often um, at some remove from actual practice. And so it, it, you're, you're absolutely right that there, there are instances and moments in which there's, there's awareness and, and, and reflection on uh, the costs of uh, racist or demagogical uh, speech and behavior. Uh, and, and there's, there's awareness of the, of the potential for backlash. Um, I, I think that you see that much more actually in the United Kingdom, 
where because of the experience of the British Army in Northern Ireland and because of the understanding of the effect of policies like internment on uh, Catholic public sentiment and the way that that derailed the ability of uh, the, uh, the British Army to perform their own mission in Northern Ireland in the, in the late 70s and 80s. Um, there's much more awareness of the problem there, and there's much more cognizance in both political rhetoric and among the public of, of the backlash problem. I, I, I think that, I think that it's, it's just evidence of, in the United States of a, of a certain um, uh, gap between uh, what's empirically known about what works in the national security context on the one hand, and on the other hand, the kind of political rhetoric that we see even in the ordinary course of things, which doesn't really have that much to do with what works and what doesn't work, um, that explains the, the, the sort of the periodic nature of, of, of this recognition that you're alluding to. Talk about how you see Trump now in office affecting the perceived legitimacy of law enforcement via his Justice Department, his State Department, the, the whole travel ban, and his personal actions. So I, I think that there's a, there's a couple of vectors that this, this might, uh, this, these, these actions might um, affect uh, national security or, or security from crime. Um, one vector is, is, you know, to the extent that uh, the propaganda of terrorist groups relies upon the, the claim that Western governments are, in fact, uh, not cosmopolitan, not welcoming, uh, uh, bigoted or uh, discriminatory against uh, against Muslims in particular, um, then, then obviously there's uh, meat for those uh, pernicious forms of propaganda in, in in many of the actions that we've seen over the last uh, six months. And, and and that's that's you know anything that helps these organisations like the Islamic State is uh, deeply regrettable uh, to say the the very very least. Um, on the on the on the crime front, um, I, you know, I, I think we're going through a very unusual and odd moment in the sense that, um, you know, we have on the one hand a, a federal government that's deeply um, unsympathetic and, and, and somewhat tone deaf with respect to the, the efforts to uh, reform both policing and uh, the the over incarceration of, um, in particular. Uh, uh, urban populations um, of color, um, but where at the local level you still have many mayors, uh, many police chiefs, um, and many individual police officers who are, you know, very cognizant of those problems and very, uh, very eager to to make progress. And and so I, I think this is a it's a very uncertain moment in the in that. Um, the federal government and the states are looking in kind of somewhat different directions. But unusually, it's the states that are and, and localities that are pushing the progressive edge of the envelope now. Perhaps the most interesting part of your article is that the issue goes well beyond law enforcement or obedience to the law to the state of our democracy itself. Explain that connection and the lessons you draw from uh, developments in Turkey and India. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the issues that I as a law professor have been working on in the last six months is, 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 is why did democracies 
uh, remain stable and, and when do they backslide. And we've seen a lot of evidence of, of democratic backsliding in, in Turkey, as you mentioned recently, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe in countries like uh, Hungary and Poland, uh, in uh, South America, in uh, Venezuela very, very sharply, and, but other countries like uh, Bolivia and Ecuador too. Um, and I have been asking myself, well, what is it about institutions, what is it about constitutions that leads to democratic decline? And there's, there's a whole bunch of different stories that, that you see playing out of democratic decline. But one of them is, um, is where you have an um, already somewhat autocratic leader who is faced with a, a degree of uh, popular resistance and a, um, a political system where there's actually some spaces for uh, dissent and for opposition, but those spaces are, are somewhat controlled. I think this, this describes Russia now. I think it describes Turkey. It describes Venezuela. And what turns out to be really important in, um, in those situations, and, and, and more broadly, but I think the point is sharpest in those situations, what turns out to be really important is, is what the police do. Because it's the police that decide the extent to which uh, popular protests will uh, flourish or will be staunched. Right? And, and we see this, for example, in Tahrir Square in 2011, where it was, it was tremendously important right, to the success of those, those protests that the police didn't um, uh, move, uh, or, well, that the military actually um, uh, uh, prevented the police, in that case, from moving on the crowd in Tahrir Square. We're, we're seeing the same kind of contestation over what the police and the armed forces do playing out on the ground on a day-by-day -day basis now in Caracas and in Venezuela and in other cities in Venezuela. Uh, and, 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 and so that that the more that the police becomes militarized, the more that they come to align themselves with a kind of uh, more authoritarian uh, uh, law and order vision of the state, um, the more you have to worry about when, um, when democracy otherwise becomes uh, precarious or tippy, um, you have to worry that the police are going are to push things over onto the more rather than the less authoritarian side. And there's, there's, a, there's both a number of case studies from, from Turkey, Egypt, uh, Venezuela, and elsewhere that, that, that show this, but there's also large N empirical studies that, that, uh, that back this point up. It's kind of a vicious cycle, a shift away from democratic ideals or the demeaning of democratic ideals uh, in turn leads to a more excessive force in law enforcement and makes it more likely, you're right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, 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 think, that, I think that one of the reasons to pay attention to uh, these, the early signs of, 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 uh, of, of, an, of an aggressive and non uh, uh, procedurally just form of policing sort of taking root it is, is precisely the kind of vicious circle that you describe, right? You don't want to get onto the, uh, the treadmill where bad policing is producing opposition and opposition is producing retrenchment in the security state, retrenchment in the security state then produces more opposition, right? You don't want to end up in that vicious circle because then it's very hard to get off it um, 
whereas you can imagine a kind of alternative virtuous circle where you have more participatory and open policing leading to more trust, leading to less crime, leading to less demand for uh, coercive policing. Right. It's a very tricky thing figuring out how a country or a policy gets onto the, the vicious circle or the virtuous circle treadmill. Well, so the last question, besides articles like yours, what do you see as the next best steps towards reversing the divergence of uh, common police practice and this wiser theory of law enforcement? I, I think that popular movements uh, to pressure uh, the local police forces into better kinds of policing are tremendously important. I, I, I think that for all the criticism that it's received from various quarters, the Black Lives Matter movement was incredibly important. I think that local uh, initiatives, and we have a bunch of those in, in Chicago that I know about, but I know that they exist in many other places, to push policing to be responsive to communities and to be really aware of the costs that uh, coercive policing imposes, particularly upon racial minorities, I think are really important. I, I think that there's probably space for a, uh, a more global conversation on policing and on, on what works, but I, I, that's, a, that's the kind of conversation that I think that uh, the World Policy Journal and, and, and forums like it are, are starting to help uh, catalyze, uh, notwithstanding what's happening at the federal level in the U.S. Professor Huck, thank you. No, thank you, David, for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure. A professor of law at the University of Chicago, Aziz Huck is a member of the World Policy Journal editorial board and co-author of the book Assessing Constitutional Performance from Cambridge University Press last year. His article in the new WPJ summer issue is headlined, Dignity, Not Deadly Force, Why Procedural Justice Matters for Modern Policing and Democracy. Since we spoke, the nation marked 50 years since police beating of a black cab driver in Newark, New Jersey, led to five days of rioting, 26 dead and hundreds injured there, followed by similar riots in Detroit and some smaller cities. But a new Gallup poll has found that the percentage of Americans with a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the police grew from 52% to 57% over the past two years, compared with only 37% with that level of confidence in the nation's medical system and 41% approval of President Trump. At the same time, confidence in the police among Hispanics dropped from 59% to 45%, among blacks from 35% to 30%, among 18 to 34-year-olds from 56 to 44%, and among all Democrats from 52% to 44%. Although line-of-duty U.S. police deaths nationwide have declined since the 1970s, the fatal shooting of a black policewoman inside her mobile command post in the Bronx, New York, last week added to a current nationwide increase in police officers killed, at least 24 this year, up from 22 at the same point last year, which by its end saw 64 officers killed in shootings, and that was up from 41 killed the year before, according to the nonprofit National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund. Also this year, by another accounting, at least 523 people have been fatally shot by police. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Coverline Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. 
And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the growing movement to give nature legal rights. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.